This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's going on, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Today's guest, Paul Sloat. It's going to be an interesting discussion. This guy's got a lot of a lot of history, a lot of experience in a lot of areas. But generally speaking, he advises successful families on wealth preservation, legacy creation, next generation transformation, all the Asians. Paul, welcome. Hey, thank you, Jamie. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you, man. It's uh, it's fun to have uh, uh, GoBundance guys on the GoBundance podcast so they can learn uh, more about one another. So let's start with your backstory. Where are you from? What do you do? All that good stuff. Take us from the beginning. Well, I'm actually a city boy who grew up in uh, New York City when I was young. And then my parents went out to uh, the suburbs and I grew up in uh, what I call the middle of nowhere because there was nothing to do except uh, like the local ice cream store and movie theater. Right. Where was that? So what? I, Where was that? that that was a town in northern Westchester at that time, Chappaqua, New York. Chappaqua. And it was a quiet, quiet place. Yeah. <laughs> not it's anymore. Not like it is, not like it is today. I mean, I go back and I marvel at the development. But yeah. when I went there, it was a quiet, quiet place, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went to uh, college in New York and ended up working in New York City for uh, probably 15 years. Before I uh, moved down here to Philly, and I've been down here ever since. Where's the thick New York accent? I hear R's in your in your in your phrasing. What happened? Where is it? Where did it go? Uh, well, it got, shall we say, removed through years of vocal training. Intentionally. In- intentionally, any accent is gone because I used to sing semi-professionally when I was younger. And I did professional vocal training, uh, the same as you'd uh, train any professional like opera singer. So you have to be able to sing in multiple languages with the appropriate vowel sounds and consonants, regardless of what your native language is. Interesting. All right. So let's let's go there for a moment. It's funny because I I grew up on Long Island. I lost my accent when my family moved upstate. And I say upstate like Oneonta, uh, Central New York. I know exactly where you are. Right. Upstate and downstate New York, as you know, are two different worlds. And when you come up with this thick accent to a bunch of people that don't have any accent at all uh, and in third or fourth grade, they tend to beat it out of you. So my my, yeah, my accent sure. <laughs> my accent was gone by force. I like your story better. So let's go into that a little bit. You, you, uh, you were a semi-professional singer. How old? When did this start? Where did this start? So I started singing when I was in high school. In New York, I made all county and all state as a singer. And then when I was in college, I sang for uh, four years as kind of a hobby. And uh, then when I got out of school, uh, I joined a couple of choirs in New York City. And the thing about New York City is that those choirs are, I say semi-professional, but as good as any professional choir. So we regularly performed in Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall. I mean, 
the choirs I did, did things like um, the Richard Tucker Opera Benefit, which is uh, one of the premier opera benefits in New York City. We were the choir for that. And I've sung with people like uh, Luciano Pavarotti, Leontine Price. Uh, so it was uh, very interesting to get to do that. And everybody who was in the choir, like me, was working full time, but loved to sing and had a trained voice. So we had the opportunity to do all this. Wow. That's I mean, Pavarotti. That's really cool. So when did the, did the singing career end? You the said you were working. So it ended in my early 30s when kids and career took over. <laughs> gotcha. They killed the dream. They killed the dream. What, what was you? I'm curious. Was there an aspiration there or was it always a hobby? It was always a hobby. Yeah. It was never it was never an aspiration. It was always a hobby. I knew my voice was never good enough to be a professional singer, but it was good enough to sing in a choir that supported some of the best in the world. I love it, man. That's amazing. So, all right, you're in New York City. You went to college in the city or did you go to college somewhere else? No, I went to college in Ithaca, New York. Which college? Cornell or Ithaca? Oh, you went to Cornell. Good for you. I went to Ithaca for like two weeks, Ithaca College, and I didn't want to be in college, so I left. And then I ended up going to Oneonta, soon Oneonta. But um, so you went to Cornell and you studied uh, finance, I'm assuming there. No. Oh, what did you study there? Okay. So I was (laughs) almost a uh, chemistry major. I did really well in chemistry and physics and math, but decided that it wasn't for me for a career. And so then I ended up getting uh, a degree in two subjects from uh, Cornell in history and economics. Interesting. Okay. Did you continue on? Did you go MBA or anything like that? Or did you yeah, just go I, got an, I eventually got an MBA after I worked for a few years. I went down to uh, Wharton and got an MBA from Wharton. You're the second person I've talked to today, second GoBundance guy that has an MBA from Wharton. That's funny. (laughs) Second guy. And I I don't know if you know Adam Grant, but the other guy knew Adam Grant, who was a professor at Wharton. He's more recent, but uh, big, big author, you know, uh, uh, give and take and all that stuff. But that's funny. Two in a row Wharton MBAs. So really cool. Uh, Um, So you went into New York City. What was the job that you were doing at that point? What was the first career that you were? First career job. I worked for a uh, small private firm in the commodities business. Uh, They were actually the second largest trader of gold spreads on the COMEX behind Goldman Sachs, Mm. years ago called MPH Commodities Corp. And my job at that time, I created a uh, statistical program to arbitrage uh, gold futures against the forward yield curve. And so I ended up putting in place uh, large spreads of a variety of things looking to make 30, 40 basis points. So 0.3.4% with a lot of leverage. Was this, was this a, an age old arbitrage strategy or is the strategy new? Um, They had been doing it for a while, sort of more seat of the pants. And I put some real Mm. statistics around it. And we were able to actually ramp up the volume of stuff we were doing. And so probably by the time I was 24, the book of commodity spreads was close to, uh, at that time, what were, where were we? Like 800 million, 900 million in commodity spreads. Wow. 
And so right. you essentially systematized in some way right. this whole process. Right. Wow. Is that okay? What did that lead to for you? That had to be you had to be a rock star at this point. So from that, I ended up going to Wharton. I got my MBA full time. Did you did you leave and go full time to Wharton? Yeah. Got it. Go on, sorry. Uh, Continue. <laughs> right. So I was there for two years. Then I came back to New York um, and ended up working for a firm that uh, doesn't exist anymore called Drexel Burnham Lambert. Mm. Pretty well known back in the 80s. Uh, and I was there actually for only two years because when I got there, as with many big companies, what happened is the job for which I was hired, they decided I was needed elsewhere. So I ended up not doing the job for which I was hired. And therefore, I left after two years uh, doing work I didn't really like. Makes sense. It'll burn you out after a while, right? Right. Yeah. Going back real quick to Wharton. I'm just thinking about this as we as we talk through this. So you are you create this this process, you systematize this arbitrage of, uh, you know, uh, uh, right. the, you know, this couple of basis points that you're making nine hundred million dollars worth of this. What was what precipitated the decision to say, okay, I'm going to step back career wise, pursue my educational? Was that sort of like it at that time? Well, the thing you need to do. The, or? Here's the deal. I I wanted to. I was in the commodities area. I always was interested in investing in companies, and you know that had always interested me. And I couldn't get from where I was to where I wanted to be without some sort of degree in between. That's so the job that you took with, I can't Drexel, I can't remember the name of it, but with the top right, job Drexel. you took with them, was that to be in uh, some, some yeah, way? So the, uh, so the job I was supposed to get with Drexel yeah. was yeah. supposed to be in their bankruptcy investing group. Oh, okay. Where we would buy, you know, a company went bankrupt. We would go buy the debt of the company at a discount and then take control of the company. Right. And right. And so that's sort of what I wanted to do at the time, which actually was pretty prescient. There was a big opportunity starting about 91 to do that. And but what happened was one of the investment bankers lost their assistant. So instead, they put me in place churning out spreadsheets for the investment banker at that time. And I turn out the spreadsheets and, you know, I figure out, you know, the, the, the unit growth, the pricing, the margins, all this stuff for the company. And then I put it together for them. And what happened is the investment banking, the lead guy would look at this and then he'd start changing all the numbers. And he'd say, oh, we can't publish this because they're an investment banking client. Interesting. Yes. So... Was there an was there an is there an integrity thing for you in this regard? Well, you, there's a big integrity thing for me. <laughs> so I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, so you're now publishing numbers, which I'm telling you, who did all the analytic work, right. are not correct. And he's just redlining them. Just nah, correct. this one looks better. This will look better. This will look better. Correct. Was there a reckoning at any point on that person? In that in that is that well, why the firm no, no longer exists? The reckoning was for the firm. Yeah. Okay. Because what happened is I left to work in uh, the traditional money management business, and the firm ended up 18 months after I left getting in trouble with the SEC 
And ultimately, in the economic downturn, they went out of business. Wow. Yeah, well, makes sense. You know, that, that, that makes sense. That's the time that they're going to go out if they have that kind of issue. So, all right. So you leave, you go into, you said wealth management. Was Correct. that still in New York or when when did Philly come that up? That was still in New York. Okay. Uh, so this would have been the late 80s in New York. Yep. So I went into the wealth management business there until about 1995. And I really learned everything I needed to learn about investing then. All right. So what was your next move then? Was it was it an opportunity you took or one that you maybe created for yourself? So the next one is um, an opportunity I took. I had an opportunity to come down and work for uh, Wellington Management in Philly. And Wellington's one of the uh, larger, more prominent wealth management companies in the country. And they manage a lot of uh, institutional money. So typical clients would be states, uh, pension plans, um, other large institutions where you would be managing $50 million blocks of capital. Yeah. So I came down to Wellington to co-manage a $2.5 billion portfolio. And these are what is in this portfolio? Two and a half billion dollars. Is this two and a half billion dollars of public equities? So this was back in the mid '90s. So this is what twenty five years ago. Yeah. More. So that would probably be equivalent to you know six eight billion dollars today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's big, big, big dollars that you're in. And did yeah. you did you stay there? Like, what what was the progression of your career then? So what happened is. Um, they, uh, the whole group spun out. We formed an independent institutional firm mm. and basically took it from a few clients and a couple of hundred million in initial assets up to 2.2, billion before I left. And these clients, are these, these are institutional clients that you're working with? Yeah, so they're so they're like, uh, let's say Drexel University, mm. Philadelphia Museum of Art, could be Pico, could be Arco, could be you know, State of Utah. Interesting. How does that transition to you? Know, you work with families now, specific right. families, successful families, family offices. I would assume, right? Like, right. Where where does that transition come? And is that yeah? I'm kind of curious. I'm wondering if there's more fulfilling so, work so there. Here's for what you. happened. Okay, yeah. so. I built this firm and then I had an opportunity to go to BlackRock to then go build something else. (laughs) Unfortunately, a couple of years later, they did an acquisition and they took my whole, the whole division where I was working and merged it in. Mm. So I ended up with that opportunity went goodbye, but that, that happens in life. Right. So then what happened is I started my own private fund and because I had been investing at the institutional level, I knew a lot of CEOs and very wealthy people, and I started just managing money for them. And then I then then I started advising them on a variety of things. Got it. And then after ten years, I closed that fund because it reached the end of its life. And then I opened just an investment advisory firm. And then for the last seven years, I've been just providing investment advisory work to wealthy families on a variety of matters. And that's kind of spun into estate planning, financial planning, all 
in-of-a-kind philanthropic planning in addition to helping them with thinking about where they should be putting money, how they should be putting money, how they should be managing risks, how they should think about the next generation, all kinds of things that just turned out to be, I turned out to be the right person in the right place. Why why abandon the fund model? Why go to straight advisory? What was the, was it just a bandwidth thing? Well, was it here's like- a, I think it, well, I think there's two things. One, there's a bandwidth issue, Yeah. right? So to really do the fund, when I ran the fund, it was a hundred percent full-time job, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Yeah. Okay. The other issue that I found when the fund came to the end of its useful life is the business had started to be commoditized, right? So as in most things, ultimately, the market is efficient and it will commoditize or find a less expensive way to do things, right? Yeah, sure. And so what happened is, as I looked out and I was correct, the ability to add value and actually get paid for adding that value became less and less. Makes right. Sense. Yeah. Unless you had real scale and could accept the lower fees at that scale. Right. Which would be getting into what hedge fund territory. Yeah. Well, you'd really need pretty big scale to compete where the margins went. Got it. Interesting. Interesting. I can see how that would be. So essentially in the first model, you know, managing a fund you are, uh, you know, the, the the people giving money or investing the money are abdicating responsibility of that money to you Correct. and you you need to provide them a return. Whereas in your practice now, you lay out the the, the roadmap for them, Correct. the options, the what you feel is the best option, but they have responsibility. Man, I could, I could feel the heaviness of the first versus the second. I can, <laughs> well, right? but, but here's the other thing. We're going to For example, we'll help them choose managers. We'll help them allocate among different asset classes. We will do due diligence on particular investments. So if they're looking to invest, let's say, in a manufacturer of, let's say, face masks, we'll vet the opportunity. We'll look at the costs of building that manufacturing plant. We'll look at the input costs. We'll look at the uh, competitive dynamics of the end markets for them. So it's it's a little bit more than just handing everything off. Do you find clients right now that you work with, higher net worth families, drawn right. to any particular type of asset class? And it's just a general question, not like, you know, but you know, is it is it real estate? Is it the business acquisition side? Is it more securities or equities? I'm, well, I'm they tend to like to invest in real estate, private equity, right? Some yeah. of them accumulate a portfolio of businesses, if they have enough family wealth. Yeah. So it really depends on how they approach the world, Mm. right? And where they are in their evolution is this first generation versus second generation, right? So if you think about it, there's the maker generation that makes the right, the initial wealth. Then you'll have a second generation, which often builds the wealth, right? And then you have a third generation that doesn't necessarily build and may actually, uh, you know, decrease the wealth over time. And that's the classic, right, familial pattern over time. And the other thing that, you know, having been around a long time, 
you know, business models come and go and business models are of a time and of a place, right? And what's new today won't be new in 10 years. That's true. That's a really great point. Yeah. Right. And, And that's the other thing that happens is, so, you know, let's say you're a family and you've got a business that created the wealth because you came up with a new way of doing things. But after, you know, 10 years, you're going to have competitors. After 15, 20 years, the industry is going to probably mature out, right? So maybe the margins aren't as high. Maybe there's new ways of doing things that sort of chip away at the core business, right? So there's all kinds of things you have to think about. And then, so you're creating all this wealth through the core business, right? How much do you reinvest into that business? How much do you invest into businesses outside of that core business to diversify your assets and lower your, you know, risk, right? So, so there's all kinds of questions that go around that core business today, right? So, I mean, and then businesses, as businesses and industries mature, scale becomes more important, right? Or you have to have a clearly defined niche that you can own that will, where the niche is big enough that you can exist, but will not bring large competitors in to compete with you in that niche. So there's a lot of ways, things you have to think about with these families, right? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Real estate, it's it's so funny how it always seems to come back to that. It always seems to come back to real estate in some way, shape or form, right? Not that that's all that these, these folks are investing in, but I, I, and again, just no visibility with, uh, with this sort of thing. Our, 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 uh, you know, sort of a family office or a family that's that's building wealth. You mentioned about wealth preservation, legacy creation, the things that you do. Are they taking limited partnership stakes? Are they more general partnership acquisition stakes, or is it a mix? It's all of the above. Yeah. Okay. Right. So sometimes they'll invest and they'll have an active role. Sometimes they'll invest as a you know limited partner in a business. Right. They just want to get their K-1 and their return, right? So there's a variety of different things. Um, And especially when you're dealing with a maker generation, which is, I would say, the vast majority of the clients I deal with are maker generations. They've made the wealth. They tend to be more risk on versus risk off. And so what happens is they're more interested in investing directly into individual investments then investing into some sort of fund that'll give them some sort of, you know, middle range return over time. Right. right? And so you have to take that into account too, is that depending on the individual and the family and where, whether they generated the wealth or didn't generate the wealth, their risk, whole risk profile may be different. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. You and I connected over, over uh, a prior guest that I had, um, who is thinking about, you know, in the process of thinking about producing uh, a film. And it was interesting because we connected over the idea of raising capital for said film. And you have some background in this. You and I spoke briefly, actually a few days ago, I was at the airport. We spoke briefly about your experience and you've, you've been, you, I mean, obviously you've touched a lot of different, you know, asset types, call it, or investment uh, uh, vehicles. Is this, is that one of those things where it's just come up over time, uh, investing in, film projects for clients like this or is it i'm kind of curious how that 
How did that enter into <laughs> your experience? Because oh, it's so niche to me, you know? It's it's niche. It's kind of there. There is a class of investment for film production, right? Yeah. Um, it's not one I really specialize in, but I know a lot of people in that area mm-hmm. uh, because um, just of my background and people I've met over time, right? The world is two degrees of separation, right? Yeah. And so, right, or even, for example, my cousin. So I have a whole English branch of my family, okay? Yeah. And so I have a cousin, and her name is Tessa Ross, and you can go Google her, but she's a pretty well-known British producer and used to run Channel 4 for BBC, right? So I have family connections in the movie business. I have business connections in the movie business. And so I probably can help your friend. There she is. This wasn't, this is not like a core business for me. It just, I just happened to have met people over time. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, so you're, you are by trade, I would guess, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, uh, very analytical, right? You need to dive into into you know the ins and outs and like you said the weeds but i got to be able to look at thirty thousand feet too right 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 that was what i was saying but this networking aspect for you how uh, compare and contrast if you were to look at i I feel like they're almost opposing skill sets and if you are able to to leverage both then you've got like you know you're you're one of these rare people and apparently you are and obviously you are right like you've got this analytical skill this this fifty thousand feet out view that you get that's part of what you have to do in your analysis like Here's what could happen if this, if that, if this, right? Like you have to sort of draw the lines out and look big picture. But at the same time, you have to leverage a network, which you've done. And again, you've had amazing connections. Which one do you credit more success in your life? Is it your ability to network and interact with others? Is it your ability and your foresight and your 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 technical skill that you have? So here's how I would put it. Early in my career, my technical skill took me up the ladder. Mm. But once you get to a certain level, it's your ability to work with other people, your ability to network, to drive the business. Right? Yeah. Right? So, I mean, and so that's really where things have come. Yes, I I still have all those technical skills. Mm -hmm. But the real skill is seeing the 50,000 foot level now and then being able to understand how that applies to any individual person, Hmm. whether they're in the restaurant business, in the real estate business, or in the technology business. Makes sense. What would you be doing if not this? Because there's a there's a, a radiance on you when you talk about what you do. So I'm gonna guess, and you tell me if I'm wrong again, I'm gonna guess that. You love what you do. So what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Mm, If I wasn't doing this, um, I have a a pet project I just haven't had time to work on this year. Um, But I really want to open some technical vocational schools and manufacturing because there's a big need in this country. Yeah. And if I weren't doing this, I'd do that probably as a full-time job. So you're thinking like an ITT type of experience uh, or I mean, am I, am I bastardizing? I mean, I'm talking about stuff for like 3D manufacturing, 
stuff. Oh, no, 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 not ITT. I'm talking about (laughs) the future of manufacturing, right? 3D manufacturing, robotics. I mean, those kinds of areas where we just don't have enough skilled labor. Where where does that come from for you? What what is what what? How did you kind of go down that that path? Is like I mean that's a an easy you had an easy answer for hey if not this I'd be doing that like where did this enter for you enter your life? Oh, this entered. So I've always been well, I always been involved in charity. I was uh, president of my local Rotary for a while, uh, but I have uh, always thought of education as the pathway to success hmm. at some level. Right. And I'm not saying a college education. I just said education. Right. And there's a big difference. Right. Not everyone should get a college education. I think that's a problem with this country is that they think everyone should get a college education. No. Um, And I remember when I was back in high school and I had a big vocational school uh, for the county and somewhere around ninth grade, you know, if you were not really fit to go to college, in a lot of cases, people weren't, they made sure that part of your high school curriculum was that vocational training. So you walked out of high school with a skill and a trade and could earn a living, right? And there's a lot of jobs in this country where there's not enough training. So you need workforce training, you need vocational education, you need all kinds of things that would be good for the United States, right? And so to me, those needs are pretty obvious, right? when I look at things out there and I sat on the board of an educational charity called education works, uh, which provided supplemental education for inner city youth, but the supplemental education is not going to fundamentally fix what's wrong with the education system, right? You need to give them an alternative pathway to get the skills they need, not only the work skills, but the social skills so that they can earn a living and integrate themselves into the society. Is there a lack of knowledge on this right now? I'm sure there is, but what is the, can you quantify or is there, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just not seeing it. Is there a lack of um, desire problem? I mean, we've, you said it in a different way. And I think you were getting at this. I feel like we stigmatized, uh, uh, you know, um, I call it manual labor or, or, you know, trades, We've stigmatized trade. Like you, like you said, you go to college, you get a white collar job. Even if you're not built for that, there are so many people who are talented. I'm not one of them who are talented with their hands and with their brain. My dad is one of these guys. He could do anything. I mean, just anything. He can open up a Tesla and figure it out, even though he's 72 years old, right? Like he's just got that ability and he was a tradesman. He was a plumber. He made a good life for himself doing that. But I feel like that's two generations ago. And this generation doesn't see value in that, even though my God, what I pay my electrician and all the people that do the stuff, I, cause I have no clue what to do. It's, it's a very financially viable. It's a, it, you make big money doing this. So is of it a lack of can. knowledge or is it a lack of a lack of desire? And is there a stigma? Is there a marketing campaign that needs to be in place for this? I think there's a marketing. I think it's, I think at some point, all those jobs got stigmatized because at some point those were mostly union jobs. Remember oh. And there was a big thing with the unions back in the 80s with Ronald Reagan and right. Everything goes to an extreme. Right. So I think it got stigmatized back then. But I think it needs to be rethought because, as you said, not everybody should be doing that. I mean, I my grandfather, I mean, he ran a factory. He could do anything with his hands, anything. 
And so all I can tell you is that there's nothing wrong with it. There's many ways to make a living. I mean, doing what I do is just one. And being successful used to be being the best at what you wanted to be, right? It's like the advice I've given my kids. My kids my kids are going to be 27 and 29 this year. They're not kids, right? But the advice I gave them and I said, figure out what you love to do and then figure out how you can get paid to do it. Mm-hmm. It's, I said it's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. To your point, I, I, I see you see sometimes I forget where this was, but uh, these uh, this new housing development, right? A, a neighborhood being built six, eight, nine hundred thousand dollar beautiful homes. Right. These gorgeous homes in this neighborhood. And it's like, who's buying these doctors, lawyers like no master electrician, plumber, contractor, you know, right. like, you know, like all these people that have because, again, we we as a society don't have those skills anymore. That's why that's why contractors are a pain in the ass to deal with. Because they have so much work in front of them that they, you know, it's hard for them to finish your job when they've got all this other work and they can't find workers and labor to do it because it's all been, it's all been, ah, that's grease monkey work. You don't, you know, like it's unbelievable, but there's so much money and opportunity there. So I think that's brilliant. Yeah. So anyway, so that's kind of how I look at it is that, right. It's a need in the country. There's a shortage and it's something that, you know, I think that the people that come out would do really well. Yeah, it's funny the the with the right now as we record this the Russia Ukraine crisis is is in full swing. We're what a week into it or whatever at this point. And I read this um this uh theory by one of the one of uh, somebody who's been writing about this for years. You know, there's always somebody who predicted this was going to happen. This guy actually predicted like kind of along the lines of this and his theory is that Russia the current the current power structure, you know, Putin, the oligarchs whatever. Um, are like the last of the educated society. Like after the fall of the USSR, education, and I'm not like you, not college necessarily, but just education generally in Russia really suffered, right? Like people just didn't didn't Correct. didn't take paths to educate themselves on skilled trade or or white collar work or whatever the case may be. So this is sort of potentially the last stand. Like Russia's future depends on its ability to consolidate power. If not, on its own, the next generation doesn't have the skills, the wherewithal. I mean, this is, I know, a broad stroke, but it was a really interesting article or interesting thesis about, to your point about how the lack of education is the next generation's big risk in Russia. You look like you have some thoughts on this, though. I want you to go. So I I think that's an interesting theory. I haven't heard that theory before. I mean, my experience with all the Russian people I've dealt with is they're smart, hardworking, and very sharp. And so having not spent a significant amount of time in Russia, right, right, right. I really can't talk to that point. But, you know, I would just not make a broad assumption sure, about sure. society. I mean, you can make that same broad assumption here because there's a large part of the United States population that is not educated properly. Typically, core urban education is lacking, right? And we see that in high school graduation rates. We see that in technical assessments of grade level achievement. So there's a whole bunch of what I would call issues here in the U.S. That doesn't mean that we have a generation of people that can't succeed. Yeah. No, it's a great point. And to, to your point, I think foundationally, though, you, your, your first thing that you said was education is at the heart 
of, you know, right. of, of prosperity or a heart of, you know, what, what, what we, what we're going to have going forward. And, uh, your focus there, that's really cool, man. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a very inspiring other career if you ever decided to pursue that. So right. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Well, let's talk a little about, about family. You know, we've, we've, we've done a deep dive on career. You know, you've, you've done a, a lot of great things in the financial space. Uh, you said around 30s, you gave up the singing career because of family, 29, 27 year old. Talk a little bit about that. Like married when, uh, you know, and talk a little about your kids and, and your family now as this expanding. All right. So I got married uh, in my late 20s, had two kids when I was in my early 30s, mm-hmm. turned 60 last year. Uh, my kids are uh, all grown up now, yeah. uh, productively employed. Uh, we did have an issue with my son because my son, when he was born, ended up spending the first six weeks of his life in the neonatal ICU. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we had all kinds of things with him where we had to provide uh, OT, occupational therapy, PT, right? All these different types, speech therapy, all kinds of things. But in the end, it worked out okay. He ended up going to Drexel, graduated. And he's now doing internal systems consulting at uh, Ernst & Young. Wow. wow. Right. So that's a story, right, with a tough beginning and a good ending, right? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, my uh, daughter is, and my son's here on the East Coast. My daughter is out on the West Coast. She's in, she's going to turn 27 this year. She did very well. She ended up going to Penn, getting two degrees in four years, worked for a, right, one of those, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I worked for a uh, consulting firm for a couple of years, now getting an MBA at uh, UCAL Berkeley, mm. and is doing stuff healthcare related because that's what she loves and wants to do. So it has mm-hmm. nothing to do with what I did, right? I went into Wall Street. She went, she's going into healthcare. What she loves. Yeah. What she loves, right? Mm. And um, so she's, she's doing well, and uh, she actually just got engaged this past weekend. Congrats. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. which is kind of nice. Uh, she's going to get uh, going to get married soon. And uh, that'll be kind of new and different for me. Nudging her for grandkids. Are you doing it maybe subconsciously or no? All right, well, here's the deal. I'm ready to have <laughs> grandkids. I don't think they're ready to have kids yet, but I'm ready sure. for grandkids, right? Yeah, why uh, rush it for them? Yeah. There's yeah. no rush for them. Um, and let's see. Uh, my wife died a couple of years ago. Oh, and man. well, that's the way it is sometimes. Yeah. And so uh, I am right now. I have a had a steady girlfriend now, and uh, we've been together a while. We travel together, and it's a lot of fun. Family life now is about just uh, seeing the kids when they want to see me, and just enjoying my life. Yeah, I'm curious. How um, was it? If you don't mind me asking, was it was it um, expected or sudden? Sudden. Sudden. How how did you how did you deal with that? Because I, I I mean I hear these stories of somebody losing a child suddenly, or even even if it's expected. I, I can't imagine there's too big a difference. But advice, because I'm sure people listening to this might be dealing with have have dealt with or know somebody who's dealing with the loss of a loved one. What did you? How did you work through that? Well, I think the first thing is you go through a period of uh, shock, right? That the person's dead, especially if they haven't had it. You know, like, here's the difference. My dad, who is 87, has had a, he's old, right? Yeah. He's 87. He's had a series of things. His health has begun to go downhill. So if he were to have something and die in the next 
two weeks, I wouldn't be surprised because I've already made peace that he is not going to be here forever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when you lose somebody who you've been with for almost 30 years and it's all of a sudden, right. And you're not expecting it. You definitely go into shock. Mm. Right. And what happens is you do everything that's needed because Remember, there's the funeral. There's all kinds of things you need to do, and you do all those things, right? And then after that, you start to deal with all the feelings, not being able to say goodbye to that person, all kinds of things that you have to deal with. And as an adult, I think especially someone in my late 50s at that time when she died, I'd already lost a number of people over the years. So I developed a coping mechanism to deal with it, to accept my wife's death. Does that make any sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, um, how do you manage your kids through that? Uh, I think for them, it's been much more difficult and I think it's going to take them a bit longer to deal with their mother's death because it was unexpected. Yeah. Like you said, your daughter getting married, those events I'm sure will, will, will trigger some, some emotion and, and all of that. But wow, that, I, yeah, that, that, that stopped me in my tracks. I mean, I, you know, my wife and I've been married 13 years, 12 years, I should say at this point. Um, and you do take it for granted, right? You know, like it's a forever right. thing and suddenly something happens and it could all end. And I always wonder how I would handle that. And, you know, I guess at the end of the day, I have my kids. I have my two boys. They're young, seven and four, right? They're not. They're not uh, adults yet at this Correct. point. But um, I guess that's where I find solace. Is that where? Is that? Is, are your kids your your? I don't know your support system, or is it around you? You know, maybe more of a, in a other family or friend capacity. It's really other family and friends. Yeah, I've been more support for my kids than they have for me. Makes sense. Makes sense. Paul, how long have you been in abundance? Uh, how long have I been? Probably six, seven years. Wow. What is it about GoBundance that uh, that you value so much that makes you keep coming back? Well, I think first it's a great group of guys who are, you know, striving to be the best they can along a whole spectrum of, of things, right? Yeah. Whether it's their personal development, whether it's their careers, whether it's their charitable intentions, right? Whether it's their physical health, whether it's their mental health, it's a whole, what I would call holistic view of being a success, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, um, are you active in a pod right now? Oh, uh, in a GoPod? Yeah. No, I was part of a GoPod, but my life has become, uh, I would say, extremely busy right i have my core business and now i'm also uh i have a preliminary agreement with a group of guys to help them build a uh, multifamily office which would be a way to scale sure. what i am doing and that will be uh march wealth management and i'm going to help them build this out and build out their whole investment function for these wealthy families can you explain what and, that means? What, when you say multifamily office, some people may feel real estate. Oh, multifamily. But you mean- No, 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 no. Yeah, okay. Explain what that so, is, please. All right. So <laughs> so in the investment world, things sort of get stratified by net worth because the way you structure 
the firms and the products that you are able to deliver is a function of what your clients need. And what somebody who's worth a million dollars needs is different than what someone who's worth $5 million needs is different than what somebody who's worth 15 to $20 million needs and is different than what somebody who's worth 50 million or more needs. Yeah. Right. And so typically traditional RIAs, I'm a little unusual because I have some very wealthy clients, right? But traditional RIAs typically serve clients between one and let's say 10 to one to 15 million dollars in assets, right? And when they get above that, they just don't have the products to handle the clients, say in the 20 to $50 million range. Yeah. What, what, okay. pro- give me an, what do you mean by the products? What, what products? Well, do you there's mean? a lot of private equity, a lot of venture capital, a lot of um, right direct company investment that goes along. Um, and you would not put somebody into those kinds of investments if they're only worth two or $3 million. In fact, the SEC would tell you, you shouldn't, right? Yeah. And, you get, and, and you'd get in trouble with the regulators, right? Yeah. So I have to answer to the Securities and Exchange Commission. I have to answer to FINRA, right? Yeah. Financial Regulatory Authority. So there's a variety of regulatory bodies, and they tell you what you are allowed to do. Gotcha. Right? So the one, the one to 15 million are exposed, what, to securities, to, to real estate? Securities and, and real estate, typically. Yeah. And maybe at the upper end, when they get sort of in that, you know, six, eight, $10 million range, you can start exposing them to maybe some private equity and venture capital. It's a little piece of that, or, or maybe some commodity investments or a variety of right international exposure. So depending on where they are, you will depend on where you can do variety of things. Makes sense. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. So you were saying once you get into that 50 million, that's when you start to have products that you can, you can, so explain to the multifamily office. So the multifamily office is typically a family that's worth anywhere from 25 million to a couple hundred million, right? And what the types of services they need, they have need very sophisticated estate planning. Oftentimes they set up foundations. So you need to be able to help them with the foundations. They have sophisticated needs in relation to not only the investments, but reinvesting as a variety of investments mature, reinvesting the cash flow that those investments are throwing off, right? Because if you have a, let's say you have a portfolio of you know, 50 million in assets, and let's say it's throwing off 8% in cash flow every year, right? You're talking 4 million that you're going to be reinvesting every year into new, right, investments. So that needs to be reinvested. So there's all kinds of needs. And let's say, five to 10% of that portfolio matures every year. So there's another five to 10 million you have to reinvest. So you're reinvesting probably 10 to $15 million every year, right? And over time, you're going to shape how that portfolio develops and where those assets should be allocated and all kinds of a variety of things over time. So that in five years, you have certain objectives that the family wants to achieve. And on top of that, you'll layer, there's intergenerational wealth transfer. So there's trusts that need to be set up and managed. There's, you know, family limited partnerships or family limited liability corporations that need to be set up and managed. And you're going to be putting maybe new assets in there and moving assets around. So all that becomes part of how you manage for these people. That's not really what you need to do for somebody who's worth $3 million, right? Right. 
Yeah. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. Right. So when you do multifamily, so these family size, family net worths are, you said 25 to maybe, you know, 150, 200 million. Right. You're consolidating all of their, all of, well, I understand they consolidate, but you're, you're managing all of these different family offices under one umbrella. Is that what that means when you say multifamily yeah, what office? That means is that each one of these families, we would provide what I would call, you know, we'd be kind of like the, the general manager yeah. of each family, right? So that we would structure differently. It depends on the family. What is their core objectives? And then structure the assets in a way to achieve their core objectives. Got it. Why do this now for you? Why? Well, I've always wanted to build a multifamily office. So, you know, it's it's another one of those checklist things. (laughs) And I mean, you know, some people, right. Some people want to go climb a mountain. You know, I like building businesses. I built businesses over my whole life. And so that's kind of, uh, kind of my next challenge is to, to do this. And so I'm going to do it. I love it. So just uh, closing the loop on the multifamily, say versus a family office, a single family office structure, is that North of 200 million, would you have like one? Not necessarily. So what happens is sometimes a single family office ends up, a family just decides we're in the real estate business. We're just going to keep reinvesting in real estate. We're not going to diversify and we're just going to manage all of that ourselves. Hmm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yep. When you do a multifamily office, you're you're providing, I'm assuming, you know, uh, the entirety of the team for all of these families at the same time. So well, I just be a piece of the team. Correct. Sure, sure, but there's legal legal for the whole for the whole of these. Well, there's outside you. So there's outside legal. There's all kinds of outside partners you bring in to help execute this overall structure for each family. Good for you, man. That is that is yeah. That is like I, I my brain hurts even thinking of how you would do this. So God bless, man. You you got the wherewithal, the know. knowledge, all of that to do this. That's amazing. So good for you. That's really really cool. Um, all right, let's uh, let's wrap on a question from the GoBundance card game. I had it up. There we go. The question is, what did you learn from your greatest failure? What did I learn from my greatest failure? Yeah. So I learned some good business lessons, okay? And... First of all, I learned lessons about core customer concentration. I learned lessons about, you know, managing the business over time as the exterior environment changed. Okay. And so the third lesson I would say is core customer concentration. Uh, The second lesson I would say is evolving to external environment. And then the third one I would say is really planning carefully how you're going to grow the business. I learned all that from a business lesson of losing a significant client. How so? Are you because, able to share? Because they died. Oh, got it. So Core customer concentration. Talk to me a little bit. I'm trying to connect the two here. So what is that first off? And how did that play into this particular uh, uh, person? Okay. So core customer concentration comes down to how big a piece of your overall business is a single customer. 
So you're talking about your wealth management business, the the, the right. business that you have. Gotcha. <laughs> Understood. Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. Right. Or any business. Okay. Let's say you're manufacturing, you know, machinery uh, for one of the major drug manufacturers, and you have two large drug manufacturing companies as your clients. What happens if you lose one of them? Half your business goes away, right? Okay. So, so. I allowed one client to become 25% of my business. I see. Okay. And that was a mistake. And since that, I've never allowed any customer to become more than 5% of my business. How? How do you do that? Um, I manage the client base. Interesting. So if, if a client's uh, wealth or their, you know, uh, I don't know, if, if they grow to a certain point where they exceed that, they start to creep in just organically it's a eight, nine, 10%. Do you recruit new clients? Do you? Uh, oh yeah. I'm always recruiting new clients to make sure that I, I keep the percentage down. That's interesting. So that, wow, that's an amazing, okay. That connected the dot big time that landed huge for me. So right. it, honestly, I was first thinking like, okay, is that something you observed of one of your clients? But this is your business. Your business right. had one client that was way too much of it. And when they passed away, all of these core customer concentration, evolving to external environment and planning carefully how to grow the business, that just really brought it all home for me. That makes a ton of sense. Right. Wow. Wow. That's a great lesson. I love that. And you really do dial it in. You're ratcheting in all the time, like too much right here. I need to, I need to re- Re uh, whatever shift or diversify my my client base to make sure I'm not getting right. too big in one spot. Very cool. That's a great lesson, Paul. I mean that. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Right. Very cool, Paul. What's the best place for people to reach out, learn about you, website, social media handle, anything you want to share? Well, I think the best is uh, LinkedIn. Just go find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I just updated that because uh, I'm uh, I'm on a board, and so they asked me to update my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> which I probably hadn't done in like five, six years because 90, 95% of my business is either referral or it is somebody meets me and they want to get to know more about me. And that's 95% of all my new clients come that way. Makes sense. Yeah. Referral is, I mean, in your world, I can imagine, especially the kinds of clients you're dealing with, right. you know, you're not, I don't want to say run of the mill, but it's not, you know, somebody that's worth 500,000 million, million five, you're dealing with high-end clients who know people right. in their sphere at, a, at kind of the top of the pyramid. So, wow. Paul, thanks so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. It's great getting to know you. And um, I appreciate the help too with uh, with, our, with our friend, our mutual friend now. And uh, oh, I look forward to- Oh, it's my pleasure to do that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, I'll have to reach out to him and see, uh, see how he's feeling. Cause I know he's at the beginnings of this and I'm sure you gave him a ton of great information that he can leverage. So, but again, man, I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, look forward to hopefully seeing you at a future event or something like that. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jamie. Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, 
Jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon.